Y'all sound good. A lot of good stuff going on. Pastor Marissa shared some of the stuff with Christmas coming up. Uh, two big things I think are, are vitally important for you to know is one, our our normal chapel Christmas is December 18th. We're calling it a classy Christmas. We have some incredible music planned. Uh, lots of surprises to help you celebrate your Christmas holiday season. It's a classy Christmas, so we are dressing up. It's going to be very polished. You have a chance to take pictures, so wear your classiest Christmas clothes you can find, but also invite somebody to join you. This is a great opportunity uh, to invite lost friends or family or people just been out of church since COVID. It's a great chance to recalibrate, realign with the birth of Jesus. And so it's December 18th, December 25th. We are not doing Christmas Eve service because we're doing Christmas Sunday morning. You say, why are you going to do that? Uh, about six years ago, I think every six years, Christmas Day is on a Sunday morning. And we made the decision then that uh, the world is trying to make Christmas about everything except for Jesus, about gifts and traditions and family and, and all these things. And all those things are great, but those are peripheral, that Christmas is literally about Chris, Christmas, Christmas, which actually means the mass of Christ, which is the Catholic deal with church services of mass. And so we just made a decision that we want to make sure we keep Jesus the center of our Christmas traditions here, that we're celebrating the birth of our King the coming of our king, the second coming of our king. And so that is why we're going to have it on Christmas Day. It'll be about a 45-minute to an hour service just to make sure we're staying on top of things to show the world. One of my complaints with the church in general, not just us, but everybody in general, is that we'll complain about the things of the world. Like we'll complain about them taking the Bible out of schools, taking Christ out of Christmas and all these things. But when it becomes inconvenient for the church, all of a sudden our values seem more like the world's than they do the church's. And so that's what we're going to do. We're trying to show the world that Jesus is still the center of our Christmas holiday season. Uh, So a lot of good stuff going on. New Year's Day is going to be a one service to just really focus on what God is going to do for 2023 and believe for an incredible 2023 as well as we worship our way into the new year. And last week, last but not least, I, I gave you a QR code for the theology survey. They'll throw up there again. And so that is a survey we had, I think, somewhere between 30 and 40 people submit that survey. I'm praying into next year on the sermon direction, preaching direction, where we need to go. And so this helps me see where we're at theologically. There's lots of different denominational backgrounds here. Uh, you know, some of you are Baptist. Some of you come from Church of Christ or Methodist. Some of you come from heathen backgrounds. So I'm just trying to figure out uh, theologically where we're at so I can make sure I keep us healthy theologically and spiritually as a church. So if you'll scan that QR code uh, at any point during the day or the next two three days. It'll take you maybe two to three minutes to fill out this survey, and it'll give me and the elders some good information to see where we're at spiritually. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our waiting room series. Last week, we talked about all the promises of God come in the package of waiting. That if you have a promise, you're going to be waiting. Like if God promised you something, you're going to be waiting. And that many people in the Bible that received great promises were people that had to wait for those promises. And so you, we, we can kind of see that in normal life, that life is literally about waiting. If, if you go to the airport, what are you going to do? Wait. Some of you, like the Lowry's, you're going to wait three or four days for your flight. Most people wait an hour. You wait at the DMV office. You wait at the emergency room. You wait at the doctor's office. You wait to get your license at the county courthouse. Our life is a bunch of waiting. You wait and get traffic lights. So life is a lot of waiting. But the question is, how do we wait well? Right? So if you're waiting at the doctor's office, if you've ever been to the doctor's office, most of you probably have, it's not the best environment to build your faith. Right? You're, you're there for a reason. 
And then you sit in a room uh, that you have magazines to choose from. So you may look over magazines and you pull out a magazine and it's from 2004. So it's a really up-to-date news article. You got your TV going where you're learning all you need to know about uh, irritable bowel disease on the TV. The music going and you're sitting there. And so what do you do? Many times you just wait, you'll scroll through your phone on Facebook or social media, which again doesn't build your faith at all because now you think the world's going to end in about three days. Or you realize Alabama is not going to make the playoff for the first time in history. And you can just keep scrolling and building your faith as much as you want. Or you could sit there and do a Bible devotion on version, or you could maybe balance your checkbook and everybody under 30 is like, what is a checkbook? Like, you have time, and many times we think that waiting is where you're trying to fill time. You're trying to kill time. And so I read this article on Reddit years ago about just things you could do in the waiting room to kill time. And one of them was you could hide behind a magazine and stare at the people around you. And then when they get called back, you can secretly follow them back in there. Or you can gnaw on all the pins in the waiting room and slobberly put them back at top of the receptionist's desk. You could talk to the plants. You could ask people, what are you in here for? Or when you walk through, they finally, after, you know, four or five hours, the doctor calls your name, mispronounces your name, and you go back and you could turn around and point back and say, you're next, in an evil voice. So... In the waiting room, all of us have this experience, but all of us wait differently. Like we all have seen the people that get mad and irate as they're waiting. Some people go to sleep. Some people are patient. So all of us have different personalities when it comes to waiting. And so when you're in the waiting room, the reason I think that, that we don't like the waiting room is, one, we have no control over the timing and when it's going to happen. Like you show up at a scheduled time for an appointment, but you have no control over when you're actually going to get back into the doctor's office. Two, you don't know how long you're going to be there. It's a matter of if you know how long, maybe you can wait it out. Three, you don't have control over the outcome that's going to happen attached to your waiting. And so we sit here in these waiting rooms of life, but what's even worse sometimes is the waiting room of God. Where you sit in a waiting room waiting on something God promised you. And you have no idea how long it's going to take. You don't know if it's going to be one day, one year, 10 years, 30 years. You have no idea. Two, you're not in control. And as believers, I think the thing that scares us the most is not being in control. I'm not in control of the outcome. I'm not in control of the timing. I'm not in control of anything. And so you sit there not knowing what's going to happen. And so as you're waiting, the question is not going to be if you're going to wait. The question is going to be how well will you wait? In these scriptures, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says this. It says, so do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Now, now why is the author, the writer of Hebrews saying, don't throw away your confidence? It's because they were in a season of waiting. And in seasons of waiting, it's easy to throw your confidence away. It's easy to grow weak in your faith and doubt grow in, in, in your life. But he says, remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance. Everybody say patient. Patient endurance. Don't be a Karen going up there banging on the receptionist's desk. Don't ask to talk to the manager. Patient endurance is what you need now. So that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he's promised you. 
all that he's promised you. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3 says, For still the vision awaits the appointed time. It waits. You can say, for the promise awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Really, If it's already seeming slow, I don't want to wait anymore. But if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What both of these authors are saying, these prophetic words are saying is, even if you're in the middle of waiting, keep on waiting. Even if it seems slow, don't give up because it doesn't mean God said no. Just because it seems like it's slow, that's when it's time to start waiting more effectively or efficiently. See, in life, when it comes to the things of God, we do not have control over the timing. He is sovereign. He is in control. He appoints the beginning from the end. He appoints everything. He is in control of the timing. You cannot mess with God's time. You cannot expedite it. You cannot delay it. God is on his own timetable. But if God's in charge of the timing, I'm in charge of my attitude while I'm waiting. He's in charge of the timing. He determines the timing of my waiting. I determine the attitude of my waiting. And if some of us, we may need to admit, we have a little attitude check we need to get, get in our lives. Because it's difficult when you're waiting. Like you can see somebody's patient level decrease as they're waiting. If you see somebody at a restaurant waiting to sit down, waiting to get a table, and they start seeing other people get ahead of them, you will see all of a sudden Holy Spirit-filled, godly church women turn into the demonic beast. Can I talk to the manager? I, I was here first. I've been here 35 minutes. They've been here 27. I started my stopwatch. I know how long they've been here, and they went ahead of me. Well, ma'am, they're a, they're a company of two. They're a table of two. You're a table of 37. You're going to have to wait just a minute. See, you determine the attitude of waiting. You cannot determine the timing of it, but you can determine the attitude while you wait. And when you realize this, that there's seasons of waiting, when they come, they are testing periods. See, waiting is a test. And when you say that waiting means that something didn't happen according to your schedule, that you expected God to do something by a certain date or time, and as it happened, now you think you're in waiting. See, waiting doesn't even really begin until you think God should have already done something. That's when waiting begins. When you're realizing God's not on your timetable, you're now on his, the waiting begins, and it becomes this test of your faith and your patience and your character and your motives. That's a multiple-choice test. If you'll throw that up, it's, if you've been to school, you know some of you, all you do is abracadabra on your multiple-choice test. Some of you on your voting, you do the same thing. I'm not going to get into that. But you have three main choices. One, I trust God's timing and I become patient. Why? Because God said it, God's going to do it. It may not be here yet, but God said, A, I trust God's timing and I'm patient. B, I trust myself more than God and I try to play God and try to make things happen. I try to orchestrate things. I try to manipulate God with things like, well, God, you know, I've been to church three times this year and you're not faithful back to me. Or God, I gave an offering and that, that offering and you are not faith. You try to manipulate God to make happen. See, you lose faith and give up on the promises of God. 
We used to, you start making up reasons why, well, you know, maybe that wasn't God's promise for me. Or, or maybe, you know, just maybe, you know, I missed my opportunity. Or maybe, and you give up on God. Or D, none of the above, and you just sit there. Instead of waiting, you just stop living. Stop walking in faith. It's a multiple choice Test. It tests our faith. It tests our character. It tests our motives. And I think the motives are the biggest, biggest point of, of contention is because when you begin to wait, it's really testing to see if you really wanted what God promised you or not. Because if you give up, it means you really didn't want it that bad. If the only price you have to pay for a promise of God is waiting, I promise you it's worth it. Like if that's all God says, God says, I'm just putting you in the season of waiting just to make sure your motives are true. If that's the only price I have to pay to receive this promise, that is the lowest cost you're ever going to have on anything in life. And what he's really testing is our motives. Do we really want God and his presence and his relationship with us or do we just want his stuff? When it comes down to it, that's really what it's testing. Do, do I want God? Or does, do I just want God's stuff? And God is a God, he's, he doesn't really care about stuff. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. He didn't really need anything. And for us, he says, I'll take care of everything you need in Matthew chapter 6. And so he's more concerned with us drawing near to him in the relationship side of things. So the promise is actually something to draw us closer to God in waiting. And so while we're waiting, he's seeing, do we really love him? Or are we just using him? With Abraham, he gave him Isaac after we talked about last week with the Ishmael situation. He gives him Isaac. But then later on he asked him to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, on the altar. Now, why would God, who gave him this promise, who is this, this linchpin and this chain reaction of multiple promises to be fulfilled, ask Abraham, hey, come. Say, take your son, your promised son your only son. Take him to the place I'm going to show you. I need you to sacrifice him there. Abram takes his son, travels for three days, goes on top of the mountain, begins to start the process to sacrifice his son. Why would God ask somebody to sacrifice their son or sacrifice their promise? That's a, that's a huge ask. And as Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, he has him on the altar, has the knife lifted up, right when he's about to sacrifice him to God, God says, stop right there, Abraham. He says, for now I know. What, what does he know? He knows that Abraham loves God even if he has to lay down the promises of God. He can now trust Abraham not just with one promise, but with the promise of the kingdom of heaven. And so some of us, we, we, we really have to have that heart check during these waiting seasons. Do I really love God or does love the promise? Do I, am, I, am I just saying yes to God for a free ticket out of hell? And, and do I really want God or just I heard that if you, if you come to church or you serve God, do you get this prosperity promise or blessing or his healing blessing? Or are you chasing the blessings or are you chasing the Father? See, when I was younger and I used to travel, I had a tradition that anytime I travel, I'd bring home souvenirs wherever I was at to the kids to make sure they, they knew I was thinking about them while I was gone on the trip. Right? And so how sad would it be that when I'm coming home from a trip and I got my bags in my hands, 
and I'm meeting the kids. I'm coming through the door, and they're like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I drop the bags to give them a big old embrace, and they just run right past me, and they go right to the bags. Looking for the trinkets or the souvenirs, and they got, like, like but the difference is if I come home and, I, and they say, Daddy, Daddy, and I drop my bags, and they jump in my arms and embrace me. They get the relationship and the promise. But if they run past me to the promise, that's the only promise they're going to get because next time those jokers aren't getting anything. I promise you that much. See, when you embrace the giver of the promise, you get the relationship with the Father and continual blessings. But if you neglect the Father for the blessings, all you get is the one blessing and you miss the true blessing, which is the relationship with the Father of all blessings. And waiting is this timetable that tells us where our heart truly is. Do I want him with or without the blessings, or do I don't want him if he doesn't have my blessing? And in our entitlement culture, I'll tell you, you can see a lot of people really don't want God. They just want his blessings. Well, how can you tell that, Pastor? Because at the moment they have to wait. Even for a short season, they give up. Or the moment they don't get it the way they want it, all of a sudden God is to blame. And the moment you blame God is the moment you realize that you didn't want him, you just wanted his blessings. Because I promise you, in a culture that God is the cause of everything negative, in a culture, if God gave them what they wanted, I promise you, they'd say God is a good God. But the moment he doesn't give us what we want, all of a sudden he's to blame. We're, we're, what we're really saying is we're God and he's not. And waiting is what exposes that. See, the gap between the promise and the fulfillment, that gap is filled with something. Just like when you conceive a child and delivery, there's a gap there. That gap is filled with something. When there's prayer, before that prayer is answered, there's a gap. That gap is filled with something. When there's an expectation and there's a gap in reality, that gap, something fills that gap. And the principle is this. Anytime there's a gap between your expectations, what you expected something to be like, what you expected marriage to be like, what you expected parenting to be like, what you expected following Jesus to be like, what you expected ministry to be like, what you expected being a, a small business owner to be like, what you expected, when there's a difference between your expectations and what the reality is, frustration always fills that gap. So what does that mean? Well, before we had kids, I thought kids were angels. I thought you have these kids, you know, they sleep all night, they, they feed. I didn't know that they didn't sleep at all, and you feed them, and they push the food out both directions after you feed them. I didn't know they began to walk. I didn't know they began to talk back. I didn't know that, that once they turn teenagers, they forget your dad, they think you're the ATM. Like, there's things I expected, and it's different than reality, so frustration normally fills that gap. We tell newlyweds in premarital counseling that you have an expectation of your spouse. You have an expectation of yourself. Very rarely does that expectation meet the reality in the first year of marriage. And when those things aren't aligned, the bigger that gap is, the bigger the frustration is. Right? And so when it comes to God, when you have expectations, I expected God to answer my prayer by now. 
But the reality is he hasn't answered it yet. Something fills that gap, whether it's frustration or faith. That's the only two things that can fill it. I'm either frustrated with God because he has not connected these two things together or I'm standing in faith that God will connect these two things together. When I'm sick in my healing, when there's a gap there, I'm either frustrated or I'm standing in faith. When there's a situation in my marriage, I'm either frustrated or I'm standing in faith. When there's a situation in my family, I'm either frustrated or standing in faith. Frustration or faith fills the gap between the promise and fulfillment. If I'm full of faith, I'm patient. If I'm full of frustration, I look like a walking meme of Karens on TikTok. (laughs) Why? When you poke somebody who's full of faith, they're not startled. When you poke somebody who's full of faith, they're not pushed off key because their foundation is strong. They're standing on the rock. But when somebody's frustrated, when you push them, it's like a top. They begin to spin and begin to tumble over in either direction. And when people begin to tumble over, they'll tumble over on you. So you can tell when somebody's full of frustration because they're easily provoked. In Hebrews, it says it this way. It says in 6.12, it says, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. See, we, we're taught that if you just stand in faith, brother, you're going to hear, if you just stand in faith, if you stand on the promises of God. No, you have to stand in faith and patience to inherit the promises. See, faith and patience are so strongly connected together that you can't have one without the other. If you don't have patience, it probably means you don't have faith. And so what I believe we need to do is make sure we're filling that gap between the promise and fulfillment with the right stuff. How are you waiting in that gap? In all honesty, just between you and yourself and God, if you're waiting on something from God, how are you doing in the waiting test? Are you frustrated with God? Maybe you don't say it out loud because you're embarrassed, like you don't know what that means spiritually or theologically. Maybe you're upset at God. Maybe there's a promise that you've been waiting on forever and ever and ever. Maybe you just gave up on it because you don't believe it was actually true and you're frustrated with God. There's this gap between you and God and your intimacy. Maybe in your marriage, maybe you're expecting something to happen, you're frustrated with your spouse because something, like whatever that gap is, something's gonna fill it. And if it's not filled with faith, it will produce the opposite of faith, which is anxiety, frustration, fear, and animosity towards God and other people. And so I just believe, real quick today, this is not all consumer, but there's three things I believe you need to fill in that gap to see God bring the promises of God into your life with a yes and amen. Number one is this. While you're waiting, while you're in that chair, in the waiting room, in the waiting room of God, pray while you wait. Say, Pastor, that's so stupid. Like, God's already given the promise. Why why should I I pray if if God's already said it and God's already going to do it? If you come from a reformed background, you know, God's will is going to come to pass regardless of what I do. No, 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 that's not true. While you're waiting on the promises of God is the best time to pray for the promises of God. He said, that's stupid. Why does that mean? Because now you have something to stand on and something to actually pray for. Once God has given you a promise, he's given you the initiation for prayer or the catalyst for prayer, then now when I pray, I'm praying, I'm saying, God, you said this, I'm asking, I'm expecting you for you to bring this to pass. 
God, you promised me this, and you are not a liar. Your word is not a liar. It will not return back to you void. I'm standing. When you get the promise of God, that's the time to start praying the promises of God. Yeah, pastor, but God is sovereign, and God's going to make happen whatever God's going to make happen, and, and X, Y, Z, and da, 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 da. That's not necessarily true. See, when you get into the, the, the predestination and, and preordained, all this stuff, it's the decrees of God. And the decrees of God are things God has spoken before eternity ever began, that God knows the beginning from the end. He knows everything that's going to happen, everything that's not going to happen. God knows it all. He decrees a thing from heaven. Everything that's on earth begins in heaven. And it doesn't just begin in heaven. It begins with the voice of God decreeing or declaring something to be so. Nothing exists without the decree of God. And the decree of God is basically God's will that shall come to pass where he intends to come to pass. It's his will. And within the decrees of God, there's the, uh, the efficient will of God, which basically means all these things will happen. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Efficient, meaning Jesus is going to be born of a virgin He's going to live on earth, live a holy life. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend. He's going to come back. There's certain things that without a doubt are going to happen. God efficiently declares and decrees them to be so. But there's also the permissive decrees where there's some leeway in there for human responsibility that God decrees something but gives permission for us to either walk in or out of it. You say, Pastor, that doesn't make sense. No, what it means is there are certain things that God decrees that don't actually happen until man receives them in faith from God. You say, what's it mean? I believe it's God's will for all people to be saved. But do all people get saved? No. Why? God decrees a thing but gives permission to humans to either receive it or not receive it. And so those that receive it, receive it by faith to receive what God had already decreed. Those that don't receive it are those that God decreed it but they didn't receive it by faith. That's why prayer is important. Prayer is the mechanism that God established to connect all of creation with the creator. And through that connection, you get to ask God to release that which he already decreed before the heavens were ever established. And so in prayer, I ask God to release that which he already promised or decreed into my life. That's why prayer is important. It's also prayer is how I activate what God has already decreed. And so when I pray, I'm not praying to make something happen. I'm praying for God to release what he already decreed to happen. And so that increases my faith. I'm not praying trying to make God move. I'm praying for God to release that which he already said he wants to move. And so when I hear the promise of God or I'm staying on the promise of God, it makes my prayer life easier because all I'm doing is asking him to release what he's already promised me. In Ephesians, it calls it an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled, that's waiting for me, being protected by God. Basically, it's like this. Your daddy's rich. He has a lot of money, a lot of resources. He already has it. He's already decreed it's going to be yours at some point in time. But in prayer, you can call him up. Hey, daddy. Oh, man, I kind of overspent this week. I need money for gas. I'm just saying, this is what happens in my household. I need money for gas. 
Well, didn't they give you money for gas? I said, yeah, but I drove to California and back with my friends. Can, can I just get a little bit of money? What? As a dad, I can release that. It's going to be theirs at some point anyway. If I was to die today, guess what? It's all Toya's, and they get, you know, whatever 10 cents she wants to give them back. It's already theirs. See, in prayer, you're not asking God to do something new. You're asking him to release what he already wants to do. And so while you're waiting, you're praying and asking God to release. It activates the decrees of God in your life. It activates the promises of God in your life. That's why prayer is so vitally important to the believer. And I believe one of the reasons that God's people don't walk in the promises of God is because they don't walk in prayer. So, Pastor, what do you mean? We, if we did, I, I know Dr. Kendall's told me this, that most pastors spend less than three minutes on average in prayer a day. That's the leaders, the pastors of the church. But then we'll have people here on Sunday. We'll have 700 people here on a Sunday. We do prayer meeting. We'll have 80 to 90 people, which tells me there's 80 or 90 people hungry for the promises of God and revival, and the other 600 are satisfied with where they're at. Why? I am not satisfied. There's promises I'm waiting. God has decreed things over this church, over my life, over my family, over this region, that I'm in prayer asking God to release that which he already decreed over our church, over my family, and over this region. See, the decrees of God is what make it happen. So when you get a promise, when you're in the waiting season, that's when it's time to pray. Don't stop praying just because you're waiting. That's the time to pray. I remember years ago I'd heard this story about the Native American rain dance. When, and when the settlers first saw these Native American rain dance, they thought it was just so stupid. They'd show up, there's a drought, and these Indians are just dancing and dancing and dancing and dancing and dancing. But as they found out, they did research on it, that the Native American rain dance worked 100% of the time. So these settlers from England are trying to figure out how in the world does this work? They're science, you know, the settlers are scientific. They're, they know astrology and maps and meteorology, all this. They know all this stuff. They can't figure out why the Native American dance always worked. Every time they danced, it rained. And then finally, some Native American chief told them, they asked, how does this always work? He said, because we don't stop dancing until it rains. You know why prayer works? Because you don't stop praying until you get answered. That's good. That's good. If you pray once and you're like, oh, you know, God didn't answer. You know why? Because sometimes prayer is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you stand on those things and ask God to release that which you already created. But the second thing you need to fill in that gap is not just prayer. It's preparation. That while you're waiting, it's not time to sit back and be lazy. It's a season of preparation. Every season of waiting is a season of preparation. If you're waiting on a spouse, it's a season of preparation. If you're waiting on a career, it's a season of preparation. If you're waiting on a job, it's a season of preparation. Everything's a season of preparation. In the kingdom of heaven, everything is sowing and reaping. So if you're not reaping, you're still sowing, which means you're preparing the ground to take root. It says this in Romans 5, verse 3 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's saying every season produces something in your life, and seasons of waiting should produce preparation of your heart. G. Campbell Morgan, pastor in Europe, famous, said, Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not abandonment of effort. Waiting for God first means activity under command, meaning God says something, I'm going to do it. Second, readiness for a new command that may come from God. And third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Waiting is preparation, which means it is not a matter of if God wants his promises to come to fulfillment. In your life, it's not a matter of if God wants those promises. If he gave you the promise, it means he wants it to come to pass. So it's not about God wanting it. It's a matter of if I have the character to handle the promise of God. Because God's not going to give something away that I can't handle. You could rephrase it and say, it's not a matter of if God wants to fulfill his promise. It's a matter of if I have the faith to contain it or hold the promise of God. Because any blessing given before you're ready for it no longer is a blessing, it is a curse. Right? We, we know this in real life. That we tell our, our kids, you have to be 16 before you can have the keys to the car and a license. Why? That's the time frame the government thinks that you need to prepare yourself to get ready to drive. If you give the keys to a four-year-old, guess what's happened? You just turned a blessing into a curse. But if you give the keys to a 16 or 17-year-old, it's a blessing. The government says you have to be 18 to vote. Why? If you vote when you're four, whoever gives you a lollipop gets your vote. You're not ready to vote. But at 18, you have the maturity to be able to handle voting. You can't purchase alcohol until you're 21. Why? The government thinks that's the time it takes you to mature. I think now turning the time to mature is about 76 before you can do any of those things. What the, the government says, we believe there's a timeline of waiting so you can mature to handle the benefits or entitlements of freedom. Right? You have the freedom to do whatever you want to in America. But they say there's a timeline to mature to handle those freedoms. In the same way, Matthew 16, 19 says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. He said, I want to give you the keys. He didn't give Peter the keys on the first day. He said, Peter, come follow me. He waited three and a half years. Why? There was a timeline of maturity for Peter's character before he could handle the keys to the car. In the same way, in us, if God gave us the blessing too early, it would be a curse and not a blessing. There's things I, I, I've received from God now that if he gave me when I was 21, I still, I wouldn't be serving the Lord now because he gave it to me too early. There's promises you're waiting on that God wants to give it to you, but he knows if he gave it to you now, it would destroy you instead of build you up. And when you think it through that lens, that then preparation is key because we see this in real life. I, I read this, that 70% of the people that win lotteries are bankrupt and broke within five years. 70%. We think if I can just get a large chunk of money, that solves my problems. No, I heard the prophet say, mo money, mo problems. See, <laughs> so what does that mean? It means that the lottery is a huge blessing, 
but turns into a curse if you don't have the character to handle it yet. And if you think the lottery is a great blessing, the things of God are so much better and so much more powerful and so much more prosperous than any lottery could ever be. And if God gives the promise of God too early, we'd be like the 70%. We'd be like this guy, William Bud Post, who went broke and died in 2006 despite winning $16.2 million. It didn't last long. Just after one year, it hit it big. Post was $1 million in debt. Wow. His ex-girlfriend sued him for part of his winnings, picked the wrong girl, and his brother reportedly hired a hitman to kill him. The real problem, however, was his lavish spending. He bought houses, boats, and cars in a twin-engine plane that he didn't even have the license to fly. Kentucky resident David Lee Burns, five years after winning $27 million, he was penniless and living in a storage shed with his wife. The couple squandered their fortune on the typical goodies that sink so many lottery winners. They bought dozens of high-end cars, mansions, and a plane. They blew through $3 million in the first three months. By the end of the first year, $12 million was in the wind. By 2006, the couple had spiraled into drug addiction. And just 12 years after the wind changed the course of his life, David Lee Edwards died alone in broken hospice care at the age of 58. Why? A blessing received too early is not a blessing at all. I've got to prepare myself to handle the promises of God, my character. Could you imagine if God just dumped a bunch of money in your lap? That exposes your character. It doesn't build your character. Could you imagine if God just gave you a bunch of influence or authority right now? It wouldn't build your character. It exposes your character. And some things God is just trying to build you up. It's not about the promise. It's about building your faith and strengthening you. It's like when you are traveling, you're flying. A couple years ago, me and Toy were flying into Haiti, and we get where we can see the airport. And they take back off and begin to circle around and take back off. So I, I hate it when planes begin to circle the airport. Makes me mad. I'm ready to land. I'm ready to check my phone. I'm ready to get on the ground. I'm ready to leave. I want to get off this plane with all these stinky people who don't wear deodorant and they breathe too hard. <laughs> I'm either too hot or I'm too cold. I want to get off this plane, but they're circling the airport. You know why many times they circle the airport? Is because the conditions aren't correct or safe enough to land yet. So they can force it and land and possibly crash that plane. Or they can circle the airport and make us wait a little bit longer than I want to for the conditions to get right. Do you realize that maybe, just maybe, the promise you're waiting on, God is circling the airport of your life with these promises to deliver to you, but he can't quite land yet because the conditions of your soul are not ready yet. Maybe just maybe he's circling, you're frustrated. God, God, you said you would do this and you haven't done it by yet. And God is just sitting there waiting and circling and looking down, but your life is one stormy mess. And so if you want him to land the promises in your life, it may be time to settle the storms in your soul, get your character right, get your heart right, get your life right, so when he comes, he can bring it at just the right time. And the third thing you need to do while you're waiting, you need to pray, you need to prepare, but the third thing is a, a rebuke. While you're waiting, watch your mouth. Touch your neighbor and say, watch your mouth. What does that mean, Pastor? It means you can talk, you can praise your way into the promises of God, but you can also complain and talk your way out of the promises of God. 
Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The life of the promises are in my tongue and the death of my promises are in my tongue. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. You can praise your way into something, but you can also complain your way out of something. You don't believe me. When, when the Hebrew children were in the wilderness, they'd received the promise of redemption out of Egypt, but they didn't walk into the promise of the wilderness, not because they didn't have faith, but because their mouths were too big. They complained, they complained, they complained, they complained. And finally God said, hey, Moses, you ain't going in and they ain't going in because they are just complainers. Why? They mouthed their way out of the promise that God gave them. And when those same children, the children of those people walked into Jericho, crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, one of the first battles is Jericho. As they're walking around Jericho, God says this, because he remembered Hey, these people's mom and daddies are a bunch of mouthy, complaining fools. He said, I want you to march around this city seven times for seven days. But I want you to keep your mouth shut. Because with your mom and your daddy, they should be here with you. But they couldn't keep their mouth shut. And so seven is the number of completion. I want to make sure I complete this in your generation that y'all are people that keep your mouth shut. And they kept their mouth shut for the entire time till finally God said, when I scream through the horn, that you can begin to praise me. So they had to stay silent unless they were praising. And for your promise, you need to stay silent until you're praising or praying. Because if not, you may talk yourself out of something God already promised you. Psalm 62, 5 says this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 7, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm a youth. Verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, or in the New Age translation, Shut your mouth. Watch your mouth. Don't say I'm only a youth. For all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. He's saying that you can talk. He's saying I appointed you. I've consecrated you. You're a prophet. And he's trying to talk himself out of it. And God says, watch your mouth. Some of you are not standing in the promises of God because your mouth is too big. You've talked yourself out of what God has already promised you. You filled your mouth full of doubt instead of faith. You filled your mouth full of anxiety instead of peace. And when you talk yourself out of the promises, you can't blame God anymore. You can only blame yourself. So you can sympathize with your situation. You can sympathize with your opinions. You can sympathize with your fears. You can sympathize with how your body feels. You can sympathize with the situation. You can sympathize with the circumstances which means you, you conform your emotions and your faith. They conform to whatever you see and whatever's around you, or you can prophesy. So what's the difference? See, sympathize is when you speak what you feel. Sympathize is when you speak what you see. Sympathize is when you speak your opinion. Sympathizing is when you speak your circumstances. When you prophesy, you're speaking what God said and what God promised. It may feel like my body's sick, and I'm not saying all that stupid talk where oh, I'm not sick, but I'm not going to speak those promise, that fear over me. I may be sick, and I'll say, God, I'm sick. I need you to heal me. I'm not going to walk around and be like, oh, I don't feel good. 
oh, I'm so sick. I don't feel good. No, I mean, I don't feel good. My God is a healer. And I'm tired and I'm weak. But God, in my weakness, I'm made strong. Like, I, you can sympathize with your circumstances. I've been waiting 20 years. Maybe God gave up. Or I can say, I've been waiting 20 years. I'm on the verge of receiving my promise. See, you can sympathize with yourself or you can prophesy in the Spirit. And the difference is vital because when you see all the battles in the Old Testament, they were outnumbered, they were outarmed, and they could have sympathized and said, okay, let's retreat. Or they could start prophesying, no, God promised us this land. God promised us this future. God promised this generation. God prom prophesying is speaking the promises of God above your circumstances. And so when you're waiting on a promise, you can either fill your mouth Full of all your circumstances, or you begin filling your mouth full of promises of God. And the difference is vitally important. Because as you're waiting, as you're waiting, something's going to fill that gap. And as you're waiting, I believe it's the most prime opportunity to draw closer to God. Do you realize God, God doesn't. You can't stir, you know, and some of you, I'm going too far. Like all this prosperity gospel stuff where you think you can sow a seed and God's going to give you something back. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need an offering. God doesn't need your spiritual gifts. God doesn't need, all God wants is you. And he'll use the promises of God as a mechanism to draw us closer to himself in those decrees. God's already decreed it, but he expects us to use that as an opportunity to call him. He knew you'd have a need at some point, and he expects us, as we're waiting for him, to call upon him. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says it this way. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks after him. It is in our waiting that we grow closer and more intimate with God. Nothing strengthens your faith like a season of waiting. Wow, when you're sitting in that waiting room, you, you can be like everybody else in that room, either looking at an old magazine, scrolling through your phone, and you're frustrated. Or you can look at it as a season of preparation. Instead of scrolling through your phone, you realize you're not just waiting on God. God is waiting with you. See, we're so busy. We, we look at God, and I, I do this as well. We think about it. I'm in the waiting room. God's back in the back doing something. Maybe he's too busy for me. Maybe he's not ready for me yet. All these things. But the thing, what you're saying is the same thing David felt when he felt abandoned and alone. Oh, my God has forsaken me. My God has abandoned me. My God has left me. And you think you're waiting by yourself in this room. But in reality, the Father is sitting right next to you. So instead of being distracted in seasons of waiting, trying to distract yourself with social media feeds, distracting yourself with whatever's going on, instead of being distracted, it's a time of spiritual awareness of his presence of his promises and what he wants for me in my future. And when you realize that your waiting season is actually a season of his presence. You see, this is the story of Christmas. They waited 400 years in silence, 400 years in the waiting room, 400 years. And the first time God speaks, Zechariah's in the temple doing his duty. The angel shows up, scares him to death, says, your prayers have been answered. 
for you shall conceive a son. Zechariah was scared to death because he'd forgotten what he prayed for. See, in that season of waiting, God was still listening. God was still answering prayers, but he was with them in the waiting. And so some of you, you don't need to take anything else home today except for this. While you're waiting, God is with you. You may feel like you're all by yourself in this waiting room, waiting on something to happen. For some of you, it's a spouse. And you're waiting, you feel alone. No, no, that's the time. The time you would spend with your spouse, now you can spend with your father. It's a season of preparation to prepare your heart and your character so you can give yourself away. Maybe it's waiting for a healing. You think you're waiting by yourself. No, God is waiting with you. See, God is a God that doesn't forsake you nor leave you. He waits with you. As you're waiting, he's waiting too. And he's a patient, enduring God. The only question is, how are you waiting? If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. How are you waiting? What fills the gap between you receiving God's promise and you walking in God's promise. Frustration, fear, anxiety, depression, anguish, anger. Or is it faith, prayer, preparation? Because I will say this, I think how you wait determines how long you wait. How you wait determines how long you wait. Every head bowed, every eye closed, before we leave. Christmas is a reminder that God is not a God who stays in heaven. He's a God that's always drawing near to us. When Jesus was crucified, when he resurrected, when he ascended, it was a promise that I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be with you, to be close to you, to draw near to you until I return again. And so Christmas is a great reminder that, yes, Jesus came. And as C.S. Lewis says, if it's true, it can't be just slightly important or moderately important. It's of the utmost importance if Jesus came because he's coming again. Maybe you today that Jesus has been drawing close to you. Maybe you've been waiting for him. Maybe you've been waiting for a sign or something to happen. Maybe today is the day you say yes. Not to salvation, but to Jesus. We're going to be Lord and Savior of your life. And in doing so, a rebirth happens. You're a new creation of Christ. With his DNA, with his love, with his character, with his joy, with his hope, with his peace, and with his future. If that's you, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward. You said, that's me today. I just want you to slip your hand up just so I can pray for you real quick. You said, that's me. Thank you. Anybody else? You put your hands down if you raise them. I'm going to pray here in just a second. If you're one of the people that raised your hands, if you could just do me a favor and either do one of two things. Either come down front, our prayer team be down front, just let them know, hey, I prayed that prayer, and I just, I, just, I just want them to pray for you and encourage you and love on you. Or if you don't feel comfortable with that, you can stop by Connection Point. They have a gift just to say, hey, we're walking with you. We're here for you every step of the journey. But Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit and his drawing, illuminating work. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that just doesn't cleanse us. It washes us and makes us brand new. Now, thank you for those in this room that confess with their mouth and repent in their heart that you are Lord. And I pray from this day forward as a new life, a new journey, a new beginning, but a new king and a new hope. 
And I pray that you guide every step of their journey from this day forward. Use their life for your glory. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and set them apart for your purposes. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. If you would stand to your feet. If I have the prayer team come down forward. If you need prayer for anything, they are here to pray for you and agree with you, whether that's sickness in your body, something going on in your life. They just want to encourage you, love on you, and take care of you. But besides that, we love you. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you bless these, your people, with the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Jesus. As they're waiting, I pray to remind them of your presence. You fill them with your spirit, and you fill them with faith from beginning to end. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.